Um, but attachment mm. theory. So, what is the power uh, in knowing your attachment style, and what can you do about your attachment style if it's not serving you? It's again the awareness allows us to make make changes with it over time. So, if someone's got that avoidant attachment style. It's about taking more risks, what feels like a bigger risk in a relationship of, okay, I might have this impulse at the moment to withdraw and reject, but let's just stick with it and see what happens mm-hmm. yep. and, and, and see how that feels and then build trust that way. Welcome to the Prime Life Project podcast, a place to help you unlock your full potential, both mentally and physically, to become the best version of you. Welcome back to another episode of the Prime Life Project Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel James. And if you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Uh, don't forget, if you take any value from today's episode, don't forget to, handle, don't forget to like and share it with a friend. Uh, I know you are going to take some amazing value today. Uh, I've got Mr. David Eames here, who's an experienced counsellor who's provided individual therapy and couples counselling for over 15 years. David takes a holistic view on our human condition, meaning he sees us all as a product of our past experiences, our present circumstances, our feelings, our thoughts, and our behavior, behaviors. David believes it is perfectly possible to treat most behaviors, such as excessive drinking, anger, anxiety, by working on out, working out coping strategies. David also believes that genuine sense of health springs from dealing with underlying causes of our emotions, beliefs, and impulse, impulses that, uh, without addressing those issues, problems may return or be replaced with others. So you can see the sense that we're going down today. Uh, I know there's going to be a lot of value. So welcome to the podcast, David. How are we? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, good to meet you. No, really nice to meet you too. So like I said, obviously, um, like I got introduced through Mikey. Uh, mm-hmm. And Mikey said to me, you have to get this guy on your podcast. He says, okay. this guy is like, so well versed and, and very articulate in, in this subject and it's a subject that i'm exceptionally passionate about as well so uh, really looking forward to, to talking with you uh, before we dive into all this stuff about coping strategies and all that sort of stuff for my audience can you just give me a little bit of a, a background into yourself like how did you actually get into this space um it, i didn't really discover what i wanted to do with my life until i was in my mid-40s i'd been quite geeky in my sort of previous existences started off in electronics engineering uh, doing software involved in in um, financial services as well mm. and I, on a voluntary basis i was starting to do a bit of work in prisons going to prison and i thought a counseling skills course might help with that and, and maybe the direction i wanted my career to go in because I, I felt like i needed a change mm. Um, and I was hooked almost immediately, did the counseling skills course and, and just thought, wow, I like this. Because when you're doing technical stuff, you probably can always get to an answer, but with people, not so much. Mm. You know, it's unpredictable. Yeah. And I really like that. And the sense of meaning that comes from it of 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 being able to help people with with genuine problems rather than technical problems just gave me a real buzz. Mm. So that's where it started. And then I pursued it further. I spent four years training. Mm. and then uh, started building a sort of private practice from there. So, what, kind, what kind of people do you tend to actually find um, come to see you? Do you see like a general um, sort of theme of people that like you tend to see on a regular basis? Uh, they all tend to be human beings. <laughs> but, uh, but apart from that, I mean, I'm, you know, I've worked from people from the age of 16 to 80. I've worked for, with people from all sorts of different countries, obviously men and women, different backgrounds, people on people on benefits or or millionaire business owners people are just people so 
uh, yeah, there's no particular type of person I'd say that I work with, apart from human beings. I think that's the biggest thing with this. And I say, say all the time I'm going to schools. Like, what people need to understand is that just because you don't struggle with your mental health right now, we all have mental health. And it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care yeah. if you're gay, you're straight, black, white, young, old, male, fit. It doesn't care. Like you have mental health. So it can literally hit anybody. And I think that's the kind of common misconception is that people think, oh, I'm never going to struggle with that. But actually, yeah. it, it can get us all. Yeah, absolutely. And not only with, for, with regard to people struggling, people sometimes just want to do, to, to do better, to enjoy life more. Um, you know, you might have someone in his, in his 40s typically. He's done everything that he was supposed to do. He's got the job. He's got the family. He's got the nice house. So why doesn't it feel better? So it may not be in his mind, you know, described as mental health issues, but just wanting to get sort of more meaning from life. Yeah. And the work that I do is quite often longer term with clients, not always, but quite often. And so after we, we can we can deal with sort of initial issues that people come with, and then they see it as a sort of transformational process or more along the American model, I guess, of having the therapist that helps people to to get more from their everyday lives, particularly people who've got very complex lives. Mm. So I think that's what the biggest thing as well with people nowadays is, uh, especially people come to see me. So obviously, through my, obviously I'm not the level of, of coach or counsellor, but like I, I just a general sort of coach with people. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people that come to see me, they, they do have really good lives, most of them. Mm -hmm. They can't seem to find any um light in that and it's, it's where do you think this comes from so this is something that i want to sort of dive into with this because as you said people go through their life and they go to school they go to, to, to college they go to university they get a job they have the, they have all things on paper that they mm -hmm. think should make them happy mm -hmm. why do you think so many people struggle with this sense of happiness because that's essentially what we're here to we're here to be happy like that's fundamentally if you break it down people just want to be happy so why mm -hmm. do you think people struggle so much with actually taking joy and happiness from the little things well because i think that wanting to be happy is a misconception i think it, it's it's ridiculous in a way because the things that make you happy are going to make you really sad as well you know, like grief is the price of love. Mm. If you don't lose everything, it's because they lose you. Mm. Okay, so what we what what I think is a reasonable aim is meaning, mm. a sense of contentment, uh, and occasional joy. Mm. But that also means occasional sadness as well. So if you want to be happy all the time, maybe take drugs. But that gives you <laughs> other problems. You know. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not part of life. Because how if you if you're happy all the time, where are the highs? Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's very profound. Yeah. So because it's about contentment, though, because that, that's a big thing. Uh, one of mine and Mikey's mutual friends, a guy called Paul Cope, that's one of the big things he tries to get clients to is just to be content mm -hmm. like in life. If you can just be content, what what is that? What does that actually look like? What does that feel like? Well, you know, there's there's a, there's a few sort of dry, simple statements like you know happiness or contentment is is not is not getting what you want; it's wanting what you've got. Mm. Or the Greek philosopher Epictetus, he said, "Great wealth comes not from having many things, but few needs." Mm. So, so there's a mindfulness part of this as well. It's about being able to appreciate what you have. So, you know, when I, when I take the dog out for a walk, I'm not just doing it as a chore. I'm ex trying to experience it through the dog's eyes and also what's nature doing and how is the year turning. You know, almost everything we do, if like every person that you're with, if you try to be really with them, it's just living your life in, I mean, there's, you know, the Buddhist philosophy will touch on this. There's many different threads that will, will go down this route of just being connected to whatever situation you're in.
Mm. So the universe doesn't supply us with meaning. And and if people don't have uh, religious religious beliefs anymore, I mean, I had a client some time ago. We were talking about you know, is there life after death? And he said, well, if there isn't, none of it means anything. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that strikes people nowadays. The other thing is, I think people have their material needs, or many people have their material needs met these days. And then you start moving. I don't know if you ever come across Maslow's hierarchy mm-hmm. of needs. Yeah, yeah. You know, if 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 you're hungry and you and you can't breathe, you forget about your hunger. But once your hunger is satisfied, then you want some shelter and so on and so forth. And when people have got their material needs supplied, it's okay. Well, what does it all mean? And how do I connect to other people? I think that's one of the biggest things nowadays is the connection, isn't it? Mm-hmm. People want the connection. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a massive crying urge for this connection which is then that double-edged sword because we've got things like social media mm-hmm. but it is probably the least social thing that we can have mm-hmm. but it makes people have this false sense of connection yeah but there's nothing really there so then it makes us feel more empty even though we've got a million followers let's say mm-hmm. but we, we don't we've been sat at home in our little small apartment studio thing and we're actually miserable so it's just like you said it's, there's always the, 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 the double edge of everything yeah yeah, I mean, it's that connection is based on authenticity, in my view. That's Ooh. that's what I strive for in my work. I don't really try and counsel people anymore. I did when I started. But now what I try and do is to have authentic relationships with people. And that, you know, allows things to move forward. And I, I think if we have that as an aim, and the opposite of authenticity in many ways is social media. We're almost invited to present a different, you know, an idealized view of ourselves. And yeah. it gives us a very distorted view of how the world is. So let, let, let's say it's a step back then. So let's say my audience listen to this and they, they are struggling a little bit. So let's just assume that they're listening to this and they're saying, I don't feel very connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm not um, showing any sort of gratitude for what I've got, even though I know I've got this amazing hat. Like I've got a house, I've got food, I've got amazing kids. Mm-hmm. Where do you start with people? Like, what does it actually that process actually look like? And I know it's different for everybody. Sure. So I, know we, I know we're speaking very generally here, but what yeah. sort, sort of things people can do? Because they'll be listening and people will be crying out for this connection. They'll be like, like I, I want this. Like, how does this actually look? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the process that I follow is initially telling people that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Okay, that I don't have a solution for them ready for whatever problem they're presenting with. Partly because it's kind of a rule that whatever the problem is that people are presenting with is not the real problem. Mm -hmm. So let's say it's substance abuse of some kind. That's a symptom, not a problem in itself. And um, what what I tend to do is to take people through their history. So starting with their earliest memories and then working through and trying to deduce from that how their attitude towards themselves has been shaped. Attachment is a very important part of that, how people form attachments. So we try and work that out. And then going through into sort of what school is, how people how people form friendships, uh, how secure they can feel with other people. Often, you know, we look at our past in an episodic way. We look at individual things that have happened. But what I try and do and look at it is, is look at it as a narrative arc. Mm. Because then the threads start to emerge and the, the threads start to braid together. And you can see that people are made up of multiple threads. We have our genetic components, but we're also, in a way, um, we're a sum of all the things that have happened to us and how we've reacted to them. Mm. And sometimes that can be about traumatic events and then working through those and finding different ways to think about those. So I don't know what will work for people, but I do know the process works. 
Mm. And I trust the process absolutely because it always works. If people buy into it, the idea that you know they have the hope of change, it, it always works. I think people have the answers as well, don't they? That's the biggest thing. Like people have the answers. Yeah. The, the things they should need help from people like yourselves and people like me, from all these other different things, like to help them come to the answer they've already got within them. Yeah. As I said, you've got to trust the process. But what you need is someone. You've got all these jigsaw pieces. It's your life. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's in jigsaw pieces, as you said, and you're looking at little components. But what you need is someone to be like, right, well, here's the kind of picture put it together and you see it and like, oh yeah, well actually this led to that, which then led to that. And it's quite empowering for people when you see them connect their own dots in their life, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, and it takes time sometimes because you can give people an idea of, Hey, this is going to work for you. And they'll go, that's a great idea, but actually implementing it is really difficult because what we have as our conscious self, I mean, some neurologists would say that we have no such thing as free will. We're just actually acting on instinct. And all we're doing is coming up with a story to explain what we're doing. I don't go that far, but sometimes that's true. We all find ourselves doing things that we either wanted to do, we didn't want to do, or, you know, we're not doing things that we said we should do. Mm. And I see it as that, that, that our, our thoughts and our behaviors emerge from the complexity of our brain, okay, which is uh, hundreds of billions of neurons wired together. and it's like walking through a woodland, okay? You've got a path that you always walk down. It's an easy path to walk down. You want to change your route, but there's all brambles and nettles in the way. And the first couple of times you go down there, you might turn back. You might not be able to kick your way through. But if you keep pushing on through, maybe someone helping you to kick those nettles and brambles down, then eventually that becomes the new path and the old pathway gets overgrown and it gets harder to go down. Mm. So that's how I think, you know, sort of change takes time it used to be thought the brain was rather fixed but the modern buzzword is sort of neuroplasticity that the brain is always rewiring and changing but it doesn't happen overnight and that's the thing people think it frustrated don't they like mm-hmm. they, 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 they want to change but it, as you said if you've got a path you've gone your whole life and you had no conscious awareness mm-hmm. that you're walking down this path and that this path was causing you pain mm-hmm. yes you can someone can pick you up and say actually try this path but it is overgrown and it's so much easier to go back to that default setting and people yeah. don't realize and then they get beat themselves up. And for me, I think one of the, the biggest things is, um, I think you've touched on it a little bit before. I, I can't remember the exact word you used, but people's uh, view of themselves they, mm-hmm. because they beat themselves up yeah. because they, they, there's this whole standard nowadays that you have to be perfect at everything. Yeah. You, you can never be perfect. And as you said, trust the process. It's understanding that you are going to mess up and that's mm-hmm. okay. Cause that's part of being a human. That's yeah. okay. But then when you mess up once, don't give up, like put yourself back on that path and keep trying to work at it. So what, why, why do you think people do struggle with that so much? Because that is a big thing, isn't it? Like they cause themselves pain. They then walk on a nice path a little bit, mm-hmm. come to some brambles, mm-hmm. go back to the old path, and then they can't get themselves back on that path they were originally moving towards. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm thinking part of it, some of it is inaccessible because it may be in the sort of deep recesses of the brain. Some of it might be at quite a sort of primitive level. But a lot of it, I think, is down to um, unexamined core beliefs that people have. We have, we all have beliefs that shape the way we perceive the world and the way we exist in it and who we are in it. But often we don't know what those beliefs are. So, so digging those out is important to, to do that, to allow people to start becoming more accepting of themselves. And this is, the, I think, the sort of semi-mystical part of the therapeutic process is that the relationship of being able to talk about anything without fear of being judged 
allows people to accept themselves more over time. The therapeutic relationship is quite unique. There's nothing else like it. So I'll tell my clients that I'm the only person that can ever get it wrong in a session. They can, they can never get it wrong. And that's quite a liberating idea because you've not got to watch yourself that. Mm. You can say anything. It's okay. And, that, and then we see we all also have coping beliefs, which we acquire at a very early age, how to deal with, with negative situations. Often the, I think you can think of the maturing process as a way of dealing with disappointment and negative feelings. So a two-year-old loses a toy, it's unbearable. Hopefully by the time you're 22, you're better at coping with that. But then you might have to learn to deal with losing a parent. Do you know that tough things happen? And as time goes on through life, hopefully you, hopefully you learn the lessons that you get through stuff, that life is going to be tough sometimes, but you can get through stuff and develop more helpful coping mechanisms where people might use drink or drugs as ways of coping with negative feelings, which are can be very unhelpful. I think that the modern society, I believe, is causing people, correct me if I'm wrong here, because you've been doing this for a lot, long, a lot longer than I have, but I feel like people's mental health is taking a battering nowadays because people's expectations is that life should be easy, it should be simple, because uh, you've got, I call it the Tinder culture, where everything's just there and it's just instantaneous. You can you can get food delivered from all over the, the wherever you are, just like that. Everything's just instant, like Amazon, same day delivery. Mm. But that isn't life. And I feel like people are being lied to. And this is one of the biggest things when I go into schools and I talk to the 15, 16 year olds, mm. I basically give them some truth bombs. Mm. Like life is hard. Mm -hmm. It is always going to be hard. You just level up. Life is the same regardless. You just level up. You acquire the tools to deal with it better. Do you have you noticed over uh, your 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 years of doing this that people I don't have how to word this, but that people are struggling with less than they used to because it's like because life's so easy for them now they they almost catastrophize things that don't need to be. Whereas 10, 15 years ago it would have been seen as nothing. Mm -hmm. I think so. And we also have a, I think we, we were fed a false perception as Agreed. well of, 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 of what the world is. Actually, the world's a lot better place than we think it is. Agreed. There's a, there's a, a guy who was a communicator for the, for the United Nations called Hans Rosling. He wrote a brilliant book called Factfulness. There's some great uh, videos and TED Talks available on, on, on YouTube, well worth a look at. And he showed that, that good news happens slowly, bad news happens quickly. And when it bleeds, it leads. The papers, you know, they sell bad stories. Whereas, you know, people didn't recognize that the, the, the G7 millennial goals on poverty relief were met five years early. Mm. And if you look at actually things like, you know, the poverty in the world, it, most of the world is not poor. It's middle income now. And if you look at things like female education or, or, or infant mortality rates, things are enormously better. So, I mean, part of the work I do is let's look at what is good in life. It's like you take listening to music. I like listening to a bit of music. 200 years ago, did you ever get to hear any good music? Some guy whistling, maybe, and out of tune. That that's, that, that, that's Mikey every time he comes up the stairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, but nowadays, I can be entertained by the greatest artists in the world whenever I want, even after they're dead. Yeah. I mean, you know, the modern world has amazing things for us. 
So there are there are problems with it. But it's like, you know, people talking about young people these days and all woke culture and all that, losing sight of the fact, hey, you've got some young people now who are maybe thinking it's a good idea not to be nasty to other people. That's not a bad idea, is it? You know, there are many good things in the world. So when I work with young people, I'm very encouraged by by their attitude and how they are. Isn't that so interesting? Because like I said, everything that's bombed down our throats is the world is negative, the world is this, and then it puts us in that fearful state. Mm-hmm. Which then again, I feel like for me, again, you, you sort of tapped on the conscious mind, the unconscious mind. Like for me, uh, the conscious mind is, is the, 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 uh, the gatekeeper. So the conscious mind is the gatekeeper for the subconscious mind. And the way they're sort of like this, I was literally chatting to a lad earlier on this week. Um, and basically what I said to him was, basically when it comes to, if you're struggling with your mental health or whatever thing that is, most of the time I can deal with that. Like my, my guard, my guard's there. My guardian is looking after me. He's good. Like he's aware. The thoughts pop up. I'm in complete control. I've got my coping strategies, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. What happens is when you're constantly bombarded with negativity, your, your, your focus, your energy is taken away from yourself, away from the mindful present moment. And you then start to focus on the negative. Mm-hmm. Your then guard is down and things can then impregnate your subconscious a little bit. And then if you've got things that are boiling there from childhood and also the trauma, mm-hmm. it then causes you to live in such a fearful state. And essentially your brain is like a, a cut that's now, like the skin's nice and smooth, but it's now got a cut on it. And even a slight feather on that is going to cause issues. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what we're like in our mind. Like we're so sensitive because it's not a nice place to be. Most people's minds are not a nice place to be. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know what I was going with the point with this. I was wanting to basically throw that at you and see what your thoughts were on it, really, I think, because that, it, it makes me, it, it worries me that the information that you know, that I know, and so many of us know, isn't freely and readily available. And so many people seem to be struggling, and it really bothers me. Well, because I don't think, for, for many people, information on its own doesn't cut it because it comes from sort of relationship and being a way of living things. You know, the whole world seems to think they can get by on self-help books, but it's not really doing anything. Agreed. You know, some of them can be useful, you know, that they, they, they could challenge the way you think about things. But again, dealing with those deep, deep issues, those that are not readily accessible to our conscious mind, a self-help book can't help with those. And it's also about, you know, self-acceptance is such a big part of this and, and acceptance that we're not going to eliminate negativity. So if someone comes to me with anxiety, they actually the problem with chronic anxiety, which is different from people being worried, by the way. I think that's often misconstrued. Oh, you've got a problem with anxiety. Oh, just, you know, don't worry. <laughs> no, it's not that simple. <laughs> because, you know, anxiety is like the primitive parts of the brain are going, we're going to die, we're going to die, do something, we're going to die. People can't settle those fight or flight all the time. But it's a stupid system in the brain. It works like a smoke alarm. The toast's on fire. The house isn't going to burn down. I don't care. I'm going to sound the alarm till you stop the toast burning. And the stimulus keeps going and people keep getting the anxiety. But we don't want to eliminate anxiety. If I'm driving the motorway in rain, my family in the car, I want to be anxious. I want the adrenaline flowing because I want to be absolutely on the top of my game. I was anxious starting this podcast today. Still feel a little bit of that, but I cherish that. It's good. It sharpens me up. It makes me think a little bit faster. It's not a bad thing. Anxiety is useful, but it's when it gets chronic, it gets difficult. Grief, you know, sadness, they serve a purpose because that's how we get over loss. If we deny ourselves those bad feelings, we never recover from the losses. So it's about, you know, living, again, fully, authentically. 
some of it is coping mechanisms, but in the end, they just do that. They don't, they give us a brief coping, allow us maybe sometimes, it's like we're using a, an antidepressant, which doesn't solve a problem, but it may give people enough stability to start dealing with the problems. Mm. I love that. I, I think the, the, the big thing you said there about the self-help books, I've said the same thing. Like, I, I love getting my clients to read self-help books to mm. give them information. Mm-hmm. But information is useless if you don't actually apply it. And that is then the problem. And as you said, there is a lot of underlying deep stuff mm-hmm. that can't be taught through a self-help book. But what self-help mm-hmm. books can do, like you said, with like the, 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 anti, uh, the antidepressants and stuff, they can just stabilize the ship a little bit. And mm-hmm. I believe with some self-help books, if you action steps in them, it can help stabilize your ship while you then try and do some of that deep work, which again, is that's the hard stuff, the deep stuff. Like the self-help books are very, um, they're nice. People get motivated by them and they read them like, oh, this is amazing. Mm. But if you don't do anything with the, the really like use that to stabilize while you're digging the the, the, the roots up, uh, mm. there's a lot of issues are caused by that. So let's talk about some like underlying causes of things. So we spoke about this before, like a lot of people struggle with um, like underlying emotions, beliefs, and impulses. Mm-hmm. Um, where do these all come from? Because that, that's like we spoke about here. So we, we, we've just established that self-help books, most of them, some of them are, there are some good ones out there. Mm. But most of them are just a very light sort of bandage, band-aid, mm. that don't go into the root causes. So let's talk about these root causes then that people need to work on. What do they sort of look like? And where can people start to actually unpick some of these things that are essentially destroying their lives or stopping mm. them becoming the best version of themselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, the way we form attachments is a big part of it you know attachment theory a lot of work's been done on that quite a lot of research has been done on it uh, and i think a lot of that holds water uh, and those attach the way we form attachments is often that's formed in very early childhood in relationships with parents you know there's a bit of a bit of a, a british disease in this of, of of not necessarily being able to be very expressive emotionally Yep. And, and that's learned from parents who learned it from their parents and they, it rolls down the generations. So, you know, attachment basically falls into three, four categories. You can have someone who can form a secure attachment. They've had an idealized childhood and that's all worked well. Then you might have someone who's got an anxious attachment style and they're always needing reassurance from others. Then there's the avoidance attachment style, which is relatively common in our society. It's why I don't want to let people in because I know they're going to let me down. You know, just don't come near me. And then there's a chaotic attachment style which flips between anxious and avoidant, needing reassurance and then backing away. And it's hard to shift that because it's deep-rooted, but it can be shifted, you know, through through work and relationship. And and sometimes it feels really dangerous. Extreme examples, you might have someone who has um, abandonment issues. That was a bit of an issue for me. I only realized when I went through my own personal therapy, I always felt I was quite secure emotionally but i was adopted at the age of six weeks and i've came to realize that that rupture had given me a sense of abandonment so if i felt i was being left out of something i could react really badly to that quite violently and um you know emotionally violently and yeah, it's yeah. um i uh I, I, re- I came to realize in the end is the feelings become so unbearable we externalize them we push them out to others we want to make others suffer around us I was able to deal with that with time. So when I eventually got my birth records, I realized that not being had, I had not been taken from my birth mother at birth as I, as I thought, but I'd actually spent those first six weeks of my life with her in the mother and baby home. 
So, yeah, that's a rupture for a child. Now, you know, you're not going to change the fact that's happened. But then coming to understand, okay, that's one of the things that motivates my emotional problems. When I have that feeling arise, I can say, oh, hang on, David, I know what this is. <laughs> this, this is from the past. It's not about the present. And over time, the feeling comes down. But you've got to be able to identify it in the first place. Mm. There are multiple sources. Trauma is a big factor. You know, trauma takes many different forms. People, you know, the extreme example, people having PTSD, they're having uh, intrusive thoughts all the time. Now, I work with clients with PTSD and it, and it can be and it can be solved over time. There are specific specific techniques for dealing with that. It's building the relationship and trust, teaching relax, relaxation techniques. And then it's about revisiting in detail the traumatic event. Uh, in a way that feels manageable and it allows it to be shifted from the present into the past yep. because traumatic events that they don't imprint in our brain in the right way it's like the memories acquired without a timestamp attached to it so whenever we reaccess it it feels like it's happening right now yeah but if you can kind of re-experience it in the right circumstances but then it gets a timestamp in the past is it also about removing the emotional charge from it as well? Because a lot of the stuff is, it's the emotion. It's not necessarily what they're seeing mm -hmm. because that's, again, just an image that can't hurt us. Isn't, is it a lot to do with the emotional charge? Do you try and remove all that emotional charge that's within it? Well, because it because it, it's, it feels like it's happening right now, it has that emotional connection to it. So people are really experiencing the fear of it. Interesting, the more uh depersonalized people are on the event you know if people feel that they're sitting outside of themselves when it's happening the more likely they are to have that traumatic response later because they've not really experienced it at the time but there are also beliefs about it of, oh well that's changed me forever in a negative way and it's about challenging those beliefs and thinking well okay there's maybe things that you learn from this that have been positive in your life even though it's been a terrible thing that's happened hmm. is that a uh, default thing that people do because a lot of people say that, don't they? That these bad things happen to them, and they don't do it deliberately uh, by any means, but they get caught in that almost victim mentality, again, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, where this event happened, and they'll say, I can't do this with my life because of this, mm -hmm. or I can't do this because of this. And yeah. it's always using that. Why do we do that? Why does the brain do that? It, it, is it because it's so deep-rooted in the subconscious identity? Because uh, I've not really, really thought about this. Why do people do that? Because you see so many people doing that. Of They, they, they won't allow themselves to move forward with their life or allow themselves to have any sort of anything, really, because of said event. Well, it's, we, we all have beliefs about ourselves. We have a, um, a construct of ourselves that we present to the world. And, and where the hell does that come from? You know, it, like, it happens haphazardly, doesn't it? There's no plan to it. Nobody's training it. It's like, you know, schools, you know, teach people facts. They don't actually teach people how to think. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, don't teach people how to learn. That's the most important thing learning how to learn you don't have to know anything because all the all the information is in the walls nowadays everything's out there i used to keep a set of encyclopedias for looking stuff up you know they, they were gone long ago I, I love the fact that if i don't know something i can look it up in an instant yeah but how to learn and connect it all together and understand understanding is a tricky thing and understanding ourselves is the trickiest thing of all mm. you see bad events are the best teachers I learn nothing from good times. The only thing I learn from a good time is how to be an arrogant knobhead, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yep. But it's when life goes seriously wrong, when I when I really screw it up, 
that's when I've learned the most important lessons in life. That there was that what's that saying? Um, smooth seas don't make good sailors. Mm, I think it's, he's right. It's, yeah. it's essentially that, and uh, yeah. that's the thing I say to people: like, depression is the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. And that's a weird thing to say, but like the kind of person I became from that, and mm. the, the the character, the strength, and the biggest thing for me is my ability to know myself. Mm-hmm. I say, I'm not perfect. I still have bad days, but I just know myself. Kind of like, you're, like, like, like the, what you're saying from your childhood. Mm-hmm. You now know yourself. So you notice when you're acting not as your true authentic self. Ah, right. I know where that's coming from. Okay. Like, mm-hmm. let's, just, can't, let, let's just get ourselves back onto the, into the, you notice when you're not driving your own bus. Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, I screw up on a constant basis. A key skill for any therapist is hypocrisy. Because, you know, you're telling people exactly how to live life and then living life differently on occasion. Because we're human beings and we we screw up. But true self-esteem comes from accepting, okay, I could have done better there. Not, oh, I'm going to kill myself forever for doing really badly there. But, okay, how am I going to try and do better next time? I think that's the, the, it's the intention, isn't it, as well? Like, so if you do mess up, mm. what was your intention behind it? Were mm. you genuinely trying to be the best you could for your client? Were you genuinely mm. trying to give the best bit of advice? If mm. the answer is yes, and it turns out you did mess up, okay, well, at least you genuinely were coming from a place of care, love, da-da-da, and it allows mm. you to then be kinder to yourself? Yeah, you see, I, I find that with my clients, I am the closest to the best version of myself because I'm adopting a professional demeanor and there's a lot of filtering going on. It's it's with it's like it's with my wife that I'm really the worst version of myself because yeah. I can get away with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she probably listens to you on podcasts and is like, "What are you talking about? That's all you're like, oh." <laughs> yeah, hey man, never try and counsel your wife. It's a bad <laughs> road to go down. It's, it's because but, she knows I'm an idiot, you know. But but, but it is true, isn't it? And it's 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 understanding where and this is where with my clients, I try and because uh, obviously I'm not in a um, what's it, I'm more of a coaching role than like a, a therapist professional role, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always try and be as genuinely authentic as I possibly can but mm. as you said like there is still that filter because people are paying you to be that best version of yourself and yeah. then sometimes it can be very hard in our position to almost feel like a fraud sometimes because mm. you hold yourself to a standard mm-hmm. and then if you don't meet that standard it's very easy to go against what we say and mm. then start that negative dialogue within yourself yeah. of god I'm a failure I'm a fraud that that whole negative yeah. spiral but maybe you know I'm arrogant enough to to not go go down that road because mm-hmm. I'll actually tell my clients when I fall short of it. I'm not pretending to be mm-hmm. something I'm not. Mm-hmm. Again, that's part of the authenticity. Yeah. And again, it's part of you know almost the teaching aspect of of the work is it's okay to screw up. You know, it's inevitable. Yeah. But you know, don't want to ruin your life as a result of it. No, no. Yeah. Uh, what's the thing I say? Uh, you've got to be teachable in life, like a student of life. So for me, being teachable, having a high willingness to learn. And a high mm. willingness to change. So that's, mm. that, again, that's my thing. So when I do mess up, I always hold my hands up. Like even in my team meetings, like I'm very, very transparent with my team of coaches. Like when I mess up, I hold my hands up. It's like I'm not perfect. I'm winging this. Like I'm winging life. But yeah. I've always got that true intention, trying to be the best version of myself. So I think that's a really, really key thing there. Um, so when it comes to attachment theory, just to sort of link it back around again, um, mm. that's a powerful thing you said about when when we suffer. Sometimes we make other people suffer. It's the same thing. That was mm. quite a powerful thing you said. Um, but attachment mm. theory. So what is the power? Uh, in knowing your attachment style and what can you do about your attachment style if it's not serving you it's again the awareness allows us to make make changes with it over time so if someone's got that avoidant attachment style it's about taking more risks what feels like a bigger risk in a relationship of okay i might have this impulse at the moment to withdraw and reject well let's just stick with it and see what happens Mm -hmm. 
and 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 see how that feels and then build trust that way Mm. and over time there can be shifts in that so it's almost about we've got these certain patterns of behavior we identify the patterns of behavior are they ideal no okay so what can we do about changing them and when we start to change the patterns of behavior and the patterns of thinking it starts to change the way we feel so you know it used to be thought the classical psychological view of where emotions come from. I'm talking about complex emotions here, not not the basic fight or flight stuff. That more complex emotions that, that they were rooted in certain brain areas, and that people either choose to suppress them or express them. It's quite judgmental in its way. But modern neuroscience work that's been done with with um, magnetic resonance imaging shows that that complex emotions are a whole brain activity. And they are learned. Okay, so and it turns it comes down to the richness of the emotional environment that people grew up in very often. So the degree to which they're able to express themselves emotionally is down to what experience they've had, often in childhood, but it can be acquired later in life. And so again, you know, I might ask somebody who's not had that rich experience, how do you feel? I don't know, is a typical answer. People know they feel uncomfortable, but they can't they can't they can't articulate what it is that they're feeling. And so, again, part of the process is understanding what those feelings are. And it might be related to attachment. It might be related to other things. Mm. How do we understand ourselves? How do we express ourselves? First of all, we have to be able to express ourselves to ourselves before we can say it to someone else. Mm. I I guess what I'm saying is, you know, that we're enormously complex beings, but also we're enormously simple beings as Mm. well. Because we, we, we run on strategies, don't we? Like, mm. like the strategies, patterns, whatever it is. Like the, it's like with anything in business. Like you've got strategies for things. Like it's, it's real yeah. simple, basic, easy stuff. But the problem is we're running on such autopilot, we don't notice it. But mm-hmm. basically, essentially what you're saying here is once you notice the strategy, mm. this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this outcome. I don't like this outcome. Right, let's just change this strategy. Let's remove this cog. Let's stick this cog in there. Let's mm. rerun that strategy. That's mm. a better outcome. Awesome. And I think the biggest thing you said there, which I really enjoyed, uh, again, that really resonated with me, is the fact of understanding understanding that you have to know yourself first mm-hmm. you have to know yourself first your strategies how you work mm-hmm. before anyone else can i think this is a big thing when it comes to relationships i know you do a lot of uh, couple stuff i know it's mm-hmm. like off topic but i think it's all relevant is most people don't know themselves well enough to get into a relationship it's two people that don't know each other and mm-hmm. they basically go through that their entire relationship triggering each other without mm-hmm. realizing it and it becomes essentially this battleground where essentially what we should be taught at a young age, age in school and stuff, is here's one person that's a complete whole that understands himself. Here's another person that's a whole and understands themselves. They come together. They work perfectly. They can articulate. They can communicate. And it works in perfect harmony most of the time. When it doesn't, it's easily fixed. You move mm-hmm. on your merry way. That's essentially how it should be. Yeah, I mean, you know, people think they want to be individuals as a couple. It doesn't work. Or they want to merge to become one. That doesn't work either. The nice word is differentiated. Like the the cells of an embryo, they all start off the same, and then they differentiate to form different functions. Mm. And couples work best like that. I used to be very anti the whole idea of arranged marriage. I'm not talking forced marriage. But for most of human history, arranged marriage was the norm. And people would go into a marriage with a view that it was up to them to make it work. And the Hollywood image, the rom-com, was soft as this idea that it's all about fluffy love and that's something that comes externally, and people have to don't have to work on it. Hmm. Well, it's like that at start. It's largely lust, isn't it, rather than love? Agreed. 
I that's, a bit, that's, a, that's a big thing, last. by the way. That's a big thing that people don't know the difference. And I, mm-hmm. I that's one of my biggest things, lust versus love. Mm-hmm. That for me, when I understood that, was like a train hitting me. Because mm-hmm. my entire life, I thought that things I was feeling was love. It wasn't, it was lust. Mm-hmm. And I'm so aware now of when I get that feeling of lust. Yeah. I've just got to rain check it. So I didn't interrupt you there, but that's a big oh, key yeah, thing sure, there. Sorry. Yeah. And that can be related, you know, to an avoidant attachment style. So people, you know, I think typically very often men, is they they equate sexual activity with love, yeah, and and actually love is about companionship and shared lives, and it's of immensely more value. Mm. You know, I've I've been i next next month you know in a couple of months time we celebrate our forty fourth wedding anniversary. It's not always been easy, you know. I've really screwed it up at times, but or, or very nearly. But the value is immense. The, 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 the shared life, the shared history together. Uh, you know, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. And people feel that, oh, the other person's got to fix me. Well, no, I've got to fix myself. It's absolutely not a new idea. You know, the temple of Apollo at Delphi in ancient Greece, on the outside of the temple, it said, know yourself. Mm. It's like, that was the prime directive back then know yourself because it's, it's, it's at the heart of everything mm. but it's really hard to know ourselves without some help yeah so let's talk about then strategies for this mm-hmm. because again essentially this is what it comes down to is like uh for me the, the three things i tend to say is you might correct me uh, if you don't agree my, my three things for people is they need to find themselves or create themselves mm-hmm. forgive themselves and then love themselves mm-hmm. that, 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 that's three things that i say are key for people but like the, the key thing here is themselves what sort of strategies do you put in place to help people? Again, like I said, people do need a lot of guidance with this because it is very, very hard stuff. Um, and it's, it, it's emotionally hard as well. Like I said, it's, it's, it can destroy you for a little bit when you're really having to look in that mirror and take radical responsibility for the life you've created, especially if you don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do sort of, sort of strategies look like for people to help themselves know themselves? Uh, I'm going to state, the obvious thing is going to see himself serving here is get therapy <laughs> because that's that's the perhaps the shortest route to doing it but it's not available to everyone i appreciate that uh, it's just maybe forgive yourself a little bit more mm-hmm. try and think about you know where things come from but it's i honestly don't know how you do it you know life does it to you mm-hmm. Sometimes. If you're if you're willing to if you're willing, I suppose life will. Because I fully believe the universe provides. Like that's that's one big thing. The universe provides, but I feel like you have to be in a place where you want to know yourself to mm-hmm. pick up on the yeah. cues. Yeah, because they actually, you know, the, in a way, the universe doesn't provide. The stuff is available, but nothing is provided. You've got to garner it. You've got to harvest it yourself. Yeah. You've got to go and find it. And it's uh, that can be the hardest thing. A key principle in 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 therapy is autonomy. You know, respecting my client's autonomy. I, I, I don't want to be responsible for anyone else at all because I can't. I, you know, I, they've got to make their own choices in life. So whatever choices they make, it's going to be okay with me. We we'll might look at the outcome. Mm. But it... Uh, you know, I, I work with uh, from a sort of an existential basis. You know that the take into account the the existential gives us what we all face in life, like mortality, like isolation that we're each isolated from one another, uh, freedom that we only do what we choose to do, mm-hmm. uh, and meaninglessness. 
that the universe does not supply us with meaning. It's for us, to each one of us, to find what our meaning is. That's a big one, isn't it? I spoke to someone about this. It's amazing when I do podcasts like this and just things just fly at me. Um, I was talking to someone literally yesterday about this. Mm-hmm. And they kept saying to me, Daniel, how have you done this? They were like, you are not the same person that I knew five years ago. I've not mm-hmm. seen this person for a very long time. They're like, you are a completely different person. And it's kind of like what you said. It's hard to try and explain it and articulate what sort of happened. And mm-hmm. she's like, you've got such purpose. And she's like, how do I find my purpose? I don't know what I'm doing. Like, mm-hmm. And I said to her, it was really hard. I was trying to take back. I was, like, I, I was like, I don't know how to articulate it. I know mm-hmm. how to kind of coach it. Mm-hmm. I was able to try and articulate it. It's like, I actually don't know. Like, can you touch on that? Can you talk to that for a little bit? Because that, that is a big thing. That this whole thing of meaning, like man's search for meaning, like that's a a big, encompassing statement. But where yeah. could people even begin with that? Well, it's a tough one because it's you know it's maybe different for everyone. Mm. And you know, I want to respect that. Again, that's part of that freedom part of it that people only do what they choose to do. The other side of that coin, it sounds you know a bit a bit free and easy, but the other side of it, they're also responsible the outcome of their actions mm. so if they're going to choose i've got to let them choose where does the meaning come from i know where it comes from for me but it's not the same for everyone else mm. you know the meaning might come from through success in business but that might only be at the moment that may change again in the future because i think one of the enemies that we have in mental health these days is certainty people want to be certain about things and i think that actually being okay with gray is good it's not black and white there's a there's a, a, a men, uh, there's a, a mental defense called splitting where we split the world into good and bad because we don't have to worry about it then you know, they're bad people they're good people oh, oh i like you i like you i like you no now i hate you there's no way back you're going in the other camp mm-hmm. whereas we you know, kind of like you a bit you know sometimes you annoy me but hey we'll get along gray uncertainty the the uh, the the uh, the Socratic idea. Socrates said, "The only thing I know for sure is that I know nothing." But isn't that isn't that the, the whole again the whole thing with society is that it try and perpetuates the fact of you got to know, you have to have an answer. It's yeah. like you you never can. It's like that. It, it sets it up for failure. But like I think Mike is very well. Like nuance. There's nuance to everything. Like mm. it's not black or white. Like yeah. it, it, it never is that. And as you said, it, it's a really powerful thing is the way that I sort of liken life and where people are at is like a dice, like a six-sided mm-hmm. dice. And at one given time, you can only see maybe three things, like I make things up here, like business, health, finances. Mm-hmm. But then when you move that, things have got to change. Then you, maybe your health gets put on the back burner while you're looking after something else that's come up. Like you, it's, like, it's constantly changing, constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people are... They, they, they don't have the ability to shift with life. Mm-hmm. Like it's, they get, they, they find a way that works for them mm. and then lockdown happens, but then they're still trying to go the same way they were going. Mm. And then it takes them six months. Mm. They go, oh, okay, cool. I've adjusted to this. Then we're allowed out again, mm. but they're still stuck in that same way. And I think the people um, that deal with life the best are the people that have that ability to shift and evolve with what's presented to them at any given thing. And I think that comes down to fundamentally critical thinking. Mm. I don't think many people can critically think mm-hmm. nowadays. I don't think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, no one t- teaches it. No, it's uh, and I think people, they, they want to rest in the certainties because that reduces anxiety. Mm. I don't think, you know, a lot of the conspiracy theories that we have now is people feel that the world's in control if they know the secret. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, you know in feeling powerless can be can be diverted by that sense of no i'm the one in the know but you know the, there are no there are no easy answers to complex problems mm. and and sometimes there are no right answers to things there's the least worst answer mm. it's like in relationships people think you know well, what can i do my, my, you know my partner's really in trouble here i need to fix them well you can't Sometimes your only choice is to not make things worse, but that's a really important choice to make. So, you know, maybe someone's got a, got a got a partner who's uh, who's depressed. Oh, come on, snap yourself out of it. Well, what can I do? Where can I take you to cheer you up? It's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's just much better to say, "Hey, you know, I'm with you. I'm with you, no matter what." This one's podcast again, where it annoys me that I'm. I'm doing this podcast because I want to pause you and go back and rewind and re-listen to what you just said. You've, you've said some real nuggets in that last little bit there, some uh -huh. real powerful things. I see Mikey nodding in the background there. Yeah. So it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's a really good problem to have. But yeah. as you're talking, my brain's like, that was a good point. That was a good point. That was a good point. Yeah, you said some really profound things there, like the least worst choice. Mm -hmm. Because people seem to struggle with lack of control and, it, and this uh, the last podcast we spoke about was control the controllables, mm. like control what you can control. Mm. Why is it as human beings we're so wired to try and have certainty when the one thing of life is it is uncertain? Like it's, mm. it, it's a bizarre concept to me. Life is uncertain. You mm. cannot know for a fact that the sun's going to go down tonight. It might explode. The world could end. Like mm. we can make a very good assumption, 99.9% .9 chance it's good, whatever it is. The world is uncertain. It always has been. It always mm. will be. It's less uncertain now than it ever was because we have shelter. We have food. Mm. Why are we so hardwired, do you think, to try and find certainty? Because there's an evolutionary advantage to it. You know, we're still, if you like, evolution in evolutionary terms, we're still located on the savannas of Africa mm. a couple of hundred thousand years ago. And certainty helps there. There's a, there's a process called heuristics. You know, it's a way of thinking. If this, then that. Without thinking about whether the two things are really linked together, because in in survival situations, quick thinking can be really beneficial. So, you know, in Africa, a hundred thousand years ago, the people that were having a debate about what to do about the lion, they're not your ancestors. Mm. They got eaten. Your ancestors <laughs> ran away, or picked up a spear and fought back. You know, they they acted without thinking. So there's a lot of us, you know, when we feel any sort of threat, there's a lot, a lot of us which is inspired to act without thinking mm. because there's an evolutionary advantage to it. We're not evolved to, to survive in a modern, complex, urban environment. And the demands on us, it's like you take, for instance, you know, social anxieties. Social anxiety comes from because, you know, being excluded from the tribe would get you killed. So there's a real imperative to fitting in with your tribe, with your kinship group. Well, people now might have a thousand followers on or whatever on social media. They feel they've got to fit in with all of them. That's a that's a big anxiety, isn't it? How the hell are you going to keep all them happy? Mm. That's that, that's a bizarre thing you said that. We, we we are essentially the only reason why we survived was to act without thinking. Mm -hmm. Yet me just saying that acting without thinking mm -hmm. is such a negative mm -hmm. in this in this society mm. and that again was like a little bit of a light bulb moment for me like the, the, 
do you feel like nowadays acting without thinking holds a lot more um, repercussions than it used to? Because before, acting without thinking, there wasn't really much danger apart from you get eaten and you die. But nowadays, acting without thinking, because of how close-knit we are and technology, like that acting without thinking can be catastrophic for a whole host of other people. Yeah, or it can be viewed as being catastrophic. Mm. You know, the exclusion from social media, being cancelled and that. People get really anxious about that. Mm. In the end, does it really matter that much if you're not in the public eye? If you're not making your, your, your living from it, it's not ideal. But again, it's that catastrophizing process is that when you, if you can just hold your hand up and say, hey, yeah, I've got it wrong. Mm. That's the hardest thing, isn't it? Just that, that complete responsibility, get the radical responsibility. I spoke a lot about this on podcast recently. It's a complete ownership and be like, I've messed up here. Mm. I have acted without thinking. Mm. And again, you come from a place of complete vulnerability of like, I really did mess up here. I'm mm. sorry. It's genuine. It's actually heartfelt. And they can actually move forward with it. I think again, yeah. in relationships, that's one of the biggest things people don't do. They aren't vulnerable with each other and they don't actually genuinely mean things when they say sorry. Mm. They act without thinking in relationships. Um, mm. they're, they're being selfish. They do something. It affects their partner. They then don't actually mean, I'm sorry. They're mm. just saying, I'm say sorry to shut you up and get you off my back. Mm. And again, it may be down to what they're valuing in the relationship. Mm. You know, are they valuing what their partner can do for them or are they valuing when they can please their partner? Mm. And, you know, it's that, I think, you know, it's really difficult to define what love is. But, you know, what I think one of the definitions is that is that one's own love is contingent upon the mental state of the other person. You can't be happy if they're not. And that what makes you happy is making them happy. Mm. But it's, it's also important for them not to feeling that it's up to you to make them happy, you know, because it's mutual, it goes both ways. But then also then playing devil's advocate, can you make that other person happy if you're not happy? Um, it's harder. You know, it's a lot harder. And again, you've got to com comforting yourself as an essential part of, of being able to make a relationship work. So when I'm working with couples, it's really interesting to see things played out in front of me because often, you know, you just hear one side of it. Mm. But you see that there might be one, one party who on the surface looks to be most at fault, but you see it's actually the way the relationship operates drives that behavior. Mm. It's the way people interact. Mm. You've got, two, you've got three sides to every story. One side, the other side, and the truth. Especially yeah. if you're stuck in the middle, you can you're coming from a non-objective view, and you can be a bit like, okay, like I don't think this is quite right here. Yeah, and 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 their insecurities are driving it. So you know, when you're doing couples work, it's almost like doing two lots of individual work as well, because you can you can't work on it unless you're working on the unconscious stuff too. Mm. You know what what's what's triggering people to respond in a particular way. Mm. I think that's, that's that's the key thing with all, isn't it? It's the, the unconscious. You have to work on the unconscious things. Mm. Um, so this is going to be the last sort of thing I want to dive into with this. Like how 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 can people become aware of their subconscious programmings? Like some of this stuff that's going on here. Like obviously, as a therapist, like you're trained to do that. Mm -hmm. But as you said, like not everyone has access to it or the funding for it. So how can people start to actually notice what their subconscious programming is doing? Uh, tricky <laughs> it's mm. tricky uh think about it mm. self-reflection that's at the end of it you know that uh, a big part of the talk about the therapeutic process is for us as practitioners to have a reflective practice so i've been seeing the the same supervisor for more than 15 years now and uh, we meet we have an hour every fortnight 
and we talk through stuff nowadays we 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 rarely really talk about cases i might talk about things that i feel have gone well or have been surprising but we're often we're just talking about the process of 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 delivering therapy or just about feeling interesting we're just one day apart in age so we talk a lot about dealing with be, being in our 60s and how that feels and you know, that for me just helps the fact that i'm working with clients helps my mental health because i'm always talking to people about how to improve to you know positive thinking how to deal with anxiety so i'm rehearsing it for myself all the time mm. So at the heart of it is thinking and feeling, trying to feel as much as we can, trying to connect as much as we can, mm. trying to forgive as much as we can, mm. let go of any bitterness we hold towards other people. St. Augustine said that bitterness is drinking poison whilst waiting for the other person to die. It's a pretty pointless activity. Absolutely. And so forgiveness is a selfish act people think i'm doing them a favor if i give no forgive them because that helps you let go of that bitterness that's poisoning your life that is a a very very powerful thing right there because like i said people hold on to anger and that hatred and i say this to people before especially when uh something bad's happened to them in the past i'm sorry by you reliving that it's only hurting yourself mm -hmm. like you need to forgive them yeah. for you so yeah. you can get out of your head so that you can then move on. You're, yeah. you're doing it completely yeah. for you, not for them. They didn't even need to know. Yeah. Just doing it for you. Just let that go. There's a, um, someone said to me that they, uh, one of my friends went to a therapist and they said there was an amazing analogy that they use, basically saying that what happens is when it comes to this anger and hatred and stuff, that is like you're playing a tug of war and you're losing the tug of war and it's pulling you into this black hole. Mm. And the therapist just said, how are you going to not fall into this this black hole mm. and she said i don't know and the therapist said let go of the rope yeah just, yeah. just let go of the rope it's, it's that yeah. simple like it's dragging you down this black hole let go of the rope yeah so you're not gonna win that's right so we 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 own our own feelings mm. okay they belong to us not someone else so no one can make me feel anything nope. and neither can i make someone else feel anything they may feel something as a result of what i do but it belongs to them Yes. So you make a cutting remark to three different people. One person's in incandescent in anger, another person in tears, and the third goes, yeah, whatever, dude. How have you made them all feel the same thing? Mm -hmm. Just as no one can offend me, I may take offense at something someone does or says, but no one can offend me. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and again, people want to take offense. They say, oh, they want to take offense on behalf of someone else, which is particularly ridiculous. <laughs> yep. It's, it's mad. When you break it down, you genuinely think about it, it is nuts, isn't it? What mm. people's the wording that people are doing and what they're doing. So like I said, you, no one can make you do anything. Mm. Like, oh, you made me feel this. No, no, I didn't make. And I've I've really started. Also, I understood. I start using this on people. Mm. People will say like, you've made me feel. Mm. I haven't made you feel anything. You've made yourself feel that. Mm. No, no, no. You've made me. No, no I haven't. I can't yeah. make you do anything. You've yeah. chosen to respond to what I'm saying. I meant it from complete sincerity. This is how I meant it. Yeah. You have chose to internalize that put into your little story, your little narrative, and then you've made yourself feel a certain way about it. But, but it does have to have the caveat attached to it that we don't choose our feelings. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the difference between thoughts and feelings. We can choose our thoughts, we don't choose our feelings. So whilst I may feel something as a result of something else has done, that feeling belongs to me, mm. I haven't chosen it. But I can think afterwards, okay, was that feeling appropriate to the circumstances? Yeah. Maybe I want to feel about it a different way in future.
that's a real powerful thing is it that then that's reflection on it like that mm. constant that the system plays out yeah once the result isn't what you want you then got to go back and like did i respond because that's a really that's a really key point actually like is actually going back did i respond the correct way in that situation yeah. no okay next time the situation arises how would i actually like to respond yeah. so in answer to your question then how do people make these changes it's through reflection and therapeutic help helps to speed that process amazing um that's a really good place to end this this has been genuinely powerful like i wasn't like i said mikey sort of filled me in a little bit um mm. on the kind of person that you were but this has been really really insightful. i'm looking back to, this one's episode where again i'm looking forward to going back and listening to it myself because there's some real little gems you've said in there that unfortunately i wasn't able to process properly in the moment because obviously i'm in a podcast and i've got to keep the, the ball moving mm-hmm. um do you have any final words of wisdom for anybody like it's a question i like to ask all my guests um if there's someone that is struggling right now that feels a little bit of out of control and stuck with their life is there one bit of advice that you just give to them right now um there's a there was a, i think it was an ancient king of persia asked his wise men to give him a statement that was true under all circumstances and they went away and thought for a while and came back and said this too shall pass mm-hmm. and that's always true so no matter how bad it is now it will pass and if it's good it will pass too be ready for that too if you if you could just summarize how deep this episode has been it's just that in an instant just absolutely brilliant um where can people find out more where can people find out more information about you uh, i've got my website which is counselingderby.co.uk or they can email me at david.eames at sky.com Amazing. I'll get, uh, I'll get Mikey to, to pop all the, the links on the bottom of the uh, the screen. Obviously, if you listen cool. to this on audio, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, David, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you very much for your time. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care.